Well, welcome uh, to Genesis again, and um, uh, this isn't going to be just a, a one-time uh, thing. Uh, we will uh, seek to continue how we can partner uh, with churches helping churches, and I would long one day uh, sooner than later uh, to get a group from Genesis to go over and uh, love on people uh, in action, uh, and not just from a distance. We can certainly love from a distance, but uh, uh, let's be praying into how we might actually uh, get a team of people uh, in the days to come uh, to go over and uh, really be a blessing uh, to those uh, who are in need of it. So uh, I trust that uh, you were compelled, not by a video, uh, but just compelled by God to be generous. And for some reason, if you just didn't have anything with you today or you just didn't have a checkbook, uh, you can either just send that actually to the church or just bring it with you uh, next week. But uh, continue as Paul exhorted us, uh, just keep praying for uh, what God ultimately is doing in Haiti. Uh, my heart uh, today is, is uh, really three things, um, three questions, uh, which is, is pretty limited for me. I usually hit you with like 50 questions and a message. So today I'm just going to stick with three questions. And my three questions are just simply this. What is at the center of your life right now? Uh, as you examine your life, what is at the center? The reality is we all have something at the center of who we are, uh, that's driving who we are, who we're becoming. It certainly drives our actions and our reactions, our attitudes, our behavior. It drives our speech, what we say and what we don't say. Uh, so we all have something at the center of who we are. Uh, the second question that I'm going to be asking uh, is, what is the good news of the gospel? Gospel actually just means good news. And so my question is going to be, what is the good news of the good news? Or what is the the good news of the gospel. Uh, and then I'll finish with a last question is, uh, how can I live with the gospel at the center of my life? Uh, our entire community, uh, starting actually this week, is uh, launching into a brand new trimester of life groups. And life groups are small communities of people gathering throughout the week, uh, studying scripture together, praying for one another, serving together, uh, and what we're going to be focusing on this coming trimester is that last question, is how can I have the gospel at the center of my life? The reality is we all have something at the center, and so my challenge is going to be how can we as a community and certainly individually say, I want the gospel at the center, I want the good news at the center of my life. This is my friend, um, uh, I don't know exactly what his name is, but um, we'll just call him Joe. Joey. Thank you, Joey. He resembles you with, yes, not at all, actually. Um, so this is my friend uh, Joey, and uh, Joey looks a little bit abnormal because he had, probably had a little bit too much to eat, maybe, um, but uh, I drew, drew Joey with a, a much bigger uh, belly, as it were, really to represent uh, the center. Uh, and I really want you to wrestle with this question. What is at the center of your life? Um, just look at attitudes, actions, reactions, behavior patterns, speech. Just do a quick examination of your life and try to identify what is at the center, the core of who you are. We all have something. No one is void of a center. Uh, we all have something. Uh, for some, uh, our center is actually uh, fear. 
I hope you guys will be able to see that. But uh, our center for some is fear. And if you are a person who has fear at the center, at the core of who you are, uh, what will come from you will be insecurity. Um, meaning, a person ultimately who has fear at the core of who they are will be insecure in all that they do. Because at the core of who they are is they just want to be loved. They want to be accepted. They want to be embraced. And they are living a life riddled with insecurity. And they're doing anything they can to grab onto something or someone or something that will bring them a sense of security. And the great news about the gospel is in 1 John chapter 4, uh, verse 18. We're going to be going back and forth on the screen here, so if it gets... Uh, a little crazy. This is 1 John chapter 4, uh, verse 18. And it says this. There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out all fear. The heart of the gospel is a God who declares his love for you and for me. So if the gospel is at the core of, at my center of who I am, there is no room for fear, meaning there's no room for me to ever be insecure. Uh, this is Isaiah, or, uh, Romans chapter 8, just a few verses in Romans chapter 8 that speaks to God's love. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Trouble or hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or the sword? And then verse 37 says this, no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is so encouraging. Verse 38, I am convinced, this is Paul speaking, that neither death nor life, angels, demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, in verse 39, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation, nothing in all of creation would ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Think about that. There is nothing in all of creation, there is nothing in this world, in this created universe that you could ever do, that you could ever say, or someone could do to you that would separate you or cut you off from the love that is in Jesus Christ. So if fear is at the core of your life, life riddled with a, a lot of insecurity, then when the gospel comes into the core of who you are, insecurity is chased out the door because you're not, you have been embraced, you have been loved, you have been accepted because of the gospel. A second, uh, maybe for you it's not fear. Maybe for you it would actually be uh, anger. And if you have anger at the core of who you are, Really, much of your life will be marked by a lot of broken relationships. Much of your life will be marked by bitterness and unforgiveness. A lot of your life would be marked with an inability to forgive, no mercy, no compassion. A life with just frustration after frustration after frustration. Why? Because at the core of who you are, you're an angry person. And so I'll just put uh, unforgiveness. Uh, I think I spelled that right. Unforgiveness. A great verse I wanted to read 
is Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and verse 23. This talks about when the gospel is at work in your life, there is fruit. Things are coming from within you, and these are the fruit uh, that the gospel produces in us. The fruit of the Spirit, it's love, it's joy, it's peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Verse 23, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. What the gospel does when we have it at the core of who we are is it chases out anger. It kills it. Why? Because God has been merciful to me. God has loved me in all of my hang-ups, in all of my mess-ups, in all of just my sin. God forgives me. And so what chases anger out for me and what I can be able to forgive people is I have a question in my head that says, How could I not forgive that person? How could I not be compassionate or merciful or gracious or kind or patient or peaceful to that person? Because God has done all of these for me. And at the core of who I am is this good news, is this gospel. Chasing out fear, insecurity, chasing out anger, which is a life with a lot of unforgiveness. Maybe at your core, you have lust. And at the heart of someone who's got ultimately a lust at the core of who you are, your life statement is, if I could only have, and the thought process is, if I could just have this, if I could have this relationship, this career, this status, this power, this money, this influence. I know we think about lust in the context of of physically, sexually lusting after someone, but lust is so much more. It's a life that is so, it doesn't know contentment because you're just saying, if I could have this, then I would be happy. If I have this, then I would be filled. And so if you have lust at the core of who you are, an outpouring would be emptiness. Because every time you get what you lusted after, It only exposes how empty that thing actually was, and it exposes even more how empty you are. So you continue to lust for more. Well, maybe that didn't do it, but this will. If I can get her to like me, if I can get him to like me, if I can get whatever it is. And what the gospel does to someone who has got lust in their heart is you meet Jesus, and Jesus says, I've come that they would have life, that they would have life to the full, that your life would be full, not of stuff, not of possessions, not of just relationships, things we lust after, but our life would be full because of Christ. I would get things like meaning and purpose and significance and value and worth because of Christ gave me life, but he just said, I want to fill you so you will never taste emptiness again. I love uh, Apostle Paul says this in uh, Philippians chapter 4, uh, verse 12. And this is a very powerful verse, uh, especially if lust is at the core of who you are. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. Just This is a guy, I've had it all, and I've had nothing. I know both extremes. I have learned the secret of being content in in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, 
whether living in plenty or in want. And the secret of his contentment is found in verse 13. I can do everything, all things, through him who gives me strength. Paul's life was wrecked, ravished by the gospel. I don't care if I have nothing or have everything. I know where my contentment comes. I know where I get filled, and it's because of the gospel. If you have fear, life, a lot of insecurity. If you have anger, a lot of unforgiveness, the inability to forgive, the inability to be merciful. If you have lust, your life ultimately is marked by emptiness. But what the gospel does is it transforms these things. One more I'll give you. This is kind of an odd one maybe, but uh, we'll put time. What I mean by time is your past, your present, or your future. At the core of who we are is this issue of what has happened to me in the past, what has happened to me currently, or what I think will happen to me in the days to come. Meaning, what's happened in your past has dictated who you are today. Had someone hurt you, someone did something to wrong you, and that pain has stuck with you and has shaped who you are. Or maybe it's something actually in your present, and your present is so marked with worry and anxiety, not only over what was, but what currently is, and the fear and the worry of what could be. Your future, just filled with a whole lot of uncertainty. What if this happens? Or what if this doesn't happen? What if they do this? Or what if they don't do this? So if time, question mark, past, present, future is at the core of who you are, you will be very confused as to who you actually are. Life will resemble more of a roller coaster of up and down, twists and turns. Because of something that happened in the past, worries in the present, or just the uncertainty of what your future would look like. But what I love about what the gospel does is it says, I can trust God. I can trust that God is sovereign over my past as well as my present, as well as my future. He's in complete control. He knows what he's doing. There's a guy in the Bible, and his name is Joseph. And the story of Joseph, if you're familiar with it, is told in Genesis. Uh, And it's a phenomenal story of a man who was rejected by his family. His brothers sold him into slavery. They wanted to kill him, but one of the brothers finally was convicted and be like, that's probably not a good idea. Let's just sell him into slavery instead. And so they did that. And to cut to the very end of the story, God protected this man Joseph through years of slavery, through years of false accusations, through years of being imprisoned, through years of being neglected and forgotten. He meets up with his brothers as the second in command in all of Egypt. And his brothers are worried, what will our brother do to us? He can have us beheaded and killed, stoned at a moment's notice. What will he do? And in Genesis chapter 45, verse 2, 45, verse 7 and 8, he says this, But God sent me, he's responding to his brothers who are freaking out, But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Verse 8, So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. 
He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all of Egypt. And then in verse chapter 50, he says this in verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. He can look his brothers in the face. You tried to kill me. You intended to harm me. But God was in that. God was in my past. He was in my present. And he is so in the future because he allowed all of that to happen for the saving, the deliverance of many people. Someone who has got time, past, present, future, at the core of who you are, you would never be able to say that because you don't know what it means to trust God, to trust that God is in control no matter what someone has done to you. And I do not mean to belittle what someone may have done to you. I understand that so many people have gone through tragedies. People have hurt you physically, sexually, with words, verbally. But I can say, because at the core of who I am, my life will not be shaped by what my past was, my current situation is, or what my future, I think my future will be. I am convinced because of the gospel at work in my life, I will not be confused because I can trust God. And so regardless of what you have in here, what I love about this It's the cross, it's the gospel that cancels out fear, that cancels out lust, that cancels out anger, that cancels out issues of time or uncertainty, worry, anxiety, all of those kinds of things. It's the cross, it's the gospel at the center, the core of who I am that helps me to understand things like love, that helps me to understand what it means to be filled, that helps me understand what it means um, to be loved, to be completely filled, and um, well, contentment actually goes with, uh, however you spell contentment, we'll just, like that, um, thank you, um, I wanted to put uh, freedom on here. That actually, freedom uh, goes with uh, the anger bit, that because the gospel's at work in my life, I'm free. I'm free from bitterness, anger, hurt, just the oppression that comes with that. And I'm free to be filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control and gentleness. This is what the gospel, the cross at the center of my life does. Love, and it fills me so I'm not empty, learning how to be content, it brings freedom, and then ultimately, it says transformation. It transforms me. Past is I'm transformed because God is sovereign in control. My present, I am transformed because the gospel at work in my life. My future, it doesn't matter what will happen or won't happen to me because I can have full confidence that the gospel at the center, at the core of who I am, I can say, I trust God. Regardless of what they do or don't do, regardless of what they say or don't say, I'm fully confident that God 
and the gospel, the cross at the center of my life brings love, filled life, freedom, and transformation. I asked this question at the very beginning. What is at the core of who you are? I just came up with a very, very small list. Anger, lust, issues of of time, anger, um, fear. What's at the core of who you are? If you're still confused, just look at the things that flow out of you. And it's very revealing of what is actually at the core of who you are. I don't want to assume or presume uh, that when I mention gospel, that all of us actually know in detail, in its entirety, what the gospel means. So if the challenge, the charge for us today, tomorrow, this coming trimester, the rest of our life is to say, you know what? I want the gospel. If the gospel can actually transform me from a person who's got so much fear and insecurity to being able to rest in God's love, if the gospel can take me an angry, bitter, frustrated person and just give me peace and joy and patience and kindness and gentleness, if the gospel at work in my life can take an empty shell of a person who keeps chasing after different things we lust after, and if the gospel can fill me, I mean where my cup, my life is actually overflowing, if the gospel in the center of my life can take past, present, and future and transform me to that person that can, can say, I just I trust God, like Joseph. You tried to kill me, but God was in that for a greater good. I want to know then, what does the gospel mean? So my second question uh, is simply this, is what is the gospel? What does the gospel really mean? And if it means some of these things where it can really transform who you are, then how can I ultimately have that at the center of my life? First, gospel is about God. It's not about you. The gospel is all about God, and it has nothing to do with you. We benefit from the gospel, but the gospel at its core is about God, who he is, what he's done, and what he is doing. It's God-centric, God-focused, God-centered, not I-focused, not I-centric. The gospel is about God. I mentioned earlier, the gospel just simply means good news. Euangelion means, in Greek, good news. Now, that might not be helpful if you don't know what the good news actually is. And I'm going to go through this really, really quick. And there's a lot of scripture verses that I'm probably not going to be able to read every single one of them. Uh, But this is answering the question, what is the gospel of the gospel? What is the good news of the gospel? My heart would be that you would leave here and be like, I get it. I get what the good news of the gospel or the gospel of the good news is. And you would declare, I want that at the core. I want that at my center. So I would be a different person, the person God created me to be. John 3.16 
You might be familiar with it, but it just says this in 16 and 17. God so loved the world. I just stop right there. This is a world that has rebelled, rejected, and declared God to be, you are irrelevant to my life. I will be the God of my life. I will do what I want, when I want, how I want, for however long I want, regardless of what it does to me or people around me. This verse is so gospel. For God so loved the world. When he looked at the world, he didn't say, I hate you all. He could have and he should have because we have rebelled and declared hatred towards him. God looked at the world And John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And what I love about what John 3.16 tells us is love is action. I know that God loves me because he came, he showed up, he pursued me. God sent his son, he gave his son, so that whoever would believe in Jesus would not perish but have eternal life. My son uh, Tristan I tell him like probably uh, a lot, every single day, hey, Tristan, come here. Daddy, I know. I'm like, what, what do you know? You love me. <laughs> I, all right. Well, that's what I was going to tell you. Okay. And so I asked him this morning, when I saw him early this morning, Tristan, Daddy, I know. Do you want me to stop telling you? He's like, No. <laughs> And so I know we hear a verse like this, and we're like, I get it, Michael. I've heard it before. I see it on Sundays in the end zone. But I don't know (laughs) if we really get it, because it should wreck us to our core that God loves you. You know you. I know me. I've not given God one reason to declare his love, his affection towards me. I really want that just to hit. God loves you so much that he said, I'm going to give my son, my only son, my one son, that if you would just grab onto him and who he is and what he's done, you would have life and have life everlasting. 1 Peter 3.18 says this, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. God wants you with him. Regardless of whether you want to be with him, God says, I want you with me. You who are unrighteous, filled with just sin and rebellion against him, he says, I want you to be with me. And the only way that exchange happens is the righteous for the unrighteous. This is the gospel. God declares his love on the world, demonstrates it in his son. Christ dies for sins, righteous for unrighteous, so that we would be able to come and be with God. One more verse in 1 Corinthians 15. It says this, this is Paul's. He's pleading with the people in Corinth. Now, brothers, I want to remind you, after 14 chapters of instructing them how to live with the gospel at the center. Just in case you forgot, I want you to be reminded. I want you to remember this is the gospel that I preached to you, 
which you received and which you have taken your stand. Verse 2, by this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Verse 3, for what I received I passed on to you as first importance. The most important thing that I could give to you as a church, he's saying, is Christ died for sins to make you and I make the church right with God, both now and for eternity. Scripture talks about this. And he says, just as Scripture tells us again and again and again, this is the gospel, 14 chapters. And he comes back to it again, just in case you forgot. The gospel is Jesus Christ paid the penalty for sin that those who would believe would have life. What is the good news of the gospel? Don't be freaked out when I tell you that I have 10 things. But I want you to know this is the good news of the good news or the news that makes this so good. Number one, there is a God who is living. He's not dead. He is not indifferent towards you. There is a God who is alive. And the fact that God is alive and he has created you and I means that God has intentionality or purpose for your life. I have not wrestled with the question, what is the purpose and meaning of my life since I was in my early 20s? Why? Because I know my purpose. Why? Because I know my creator. Why do I know my creator? Because he's alive and he speaks and he engages the human heart and mind. How do I know that? Because Jesus showed up. He says, this is in Acts chapter 14. Paul and his companion, his friend, his partner in ministry, Barnabas. These guys are trying to just tell people all over the world about this gospel. And they come to this community and they're so enamored with, because they, they are so familiar with worshiping idols and false gods. Acts chapter 14 says this, But when the apostle Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and they rushed into the crowd shouting. When they showed up in town, they're like, gods are among us. We should worship them. And rather than responding, be like, of course you should. It's Paul. It's Barnabas. Get down on your knees and worship the great apostle. They tore their clothes in anger and said, what are you doing? Verse 15, men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you good news. We are bringing you gospel, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. Turn your life away from dead idols, dead gods. The good news of the gospel is that God is alive and he created you and me that we would know him now and forever. Number two, our God reigns. There is no God who is, I could even compare God to. There is no one like him. Isaiah 52, 7 says this, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Gospel, that's Jesus. Who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. There's, I can't even compare your God. He reigns above anything and everything. Number three, there is no God who is like our God. He not only reigns, I, 
I can't even compare him to anyone or anything. Deuteronomy says this, chapter 4, verse 35 and then 39. You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Besides him, there is no other. These things are the miracles that happened to the people of Israel. I wanted you to see these things so that you would know there is no God who is like your God. You just came from a community and a culture in Egypt that had millions of gods. But none of them hold a candle to this God. Verse 39, acknowledge, take heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. There's a living God. Our God reigns. There is no God like our God. Number four, Jesus. He is the one who is the Savior. He is the one who is the Redeemer. He is the Christ, the Anointed, Sovereign. I love, we just talked about this uh, around Christmas time. Luke chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. The angel said to them, don't be afraid. We bring you gospel. We bring you good news of great joy that will be for the people. And this is the good news, the gospel. Today in a town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's Jesus. He's Christ the Lord. God showed up. Who else showed up to love you like Jesus? Who else stepped into your life and said, I will love you unconditionally, regardless of what you do or don't do. I will bring you peace with God. This is what Jesus, Savior, Christ, the Lord has done. Number five, Jesus died for our sins. Meaning your sin is forgiven. Too many people walk around with shame and guilt because of the life they're living. And they don't know of the forgiveness that comes because of the gospel. Do I have guilt in my life? Absolutely, but my guilt doesn't kill me. My guilt leads me to say, I'm not doing that again. Leads me towards repentance, where I'm not weighed down with an overwhelming sense of sorrow. There is conviction, there is guilt, but gospel guilt leads you to live very differently. This is Mark chapter 10, verse 45. This is Jesus when he says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. One of my favorite verses in the book of Romans is uh, chapter 8, or I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 1 and then verse 8. Verse 1 says this, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God because of Jesus. I don't know if that wrecks you, but the fact that I can have peace with God, that I don't have to stand in God's presence and just be in such fear of what will he do to me? Will he kill me? Will he shame me? The fact that I can stand in God's presence with a fear of wonder and awe, knowing that I have peace with you, not because of what I've done. What I've done actually should steal all peace but because of what Jesus has done, because of the gospel, we can stand before God with God and say, I have peace with God because of Jesus. And then verse 8 simply says this, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for you. No one asked Jesus, hey, 
I'm really interested in God, and I, I'm really, and I know I can't get there myself. So will you do this for me? When our hearts' backs were bent on rebellion against God, utterly lost in just sin, Jesus died for us. One more verse in Colossians chapter 2, verse 12 through 14. This is under number 5. Jesus died for our sins. And having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead, verse 13, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins. He forgave us all of our sins, not some, not just a few, but all of them, big and small and everything in between. What you think is unforgivable, he declares is forgiven. Canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, and he took it away, meaning he took our sin. And rather than us having to pay the penalty for sin, he nailed it to the cross and said, it's, it's finished, it's paid for, you're forgiven. How freeing is that to know that you stand before God forgiven? Number six, Jesus is alive. They killed him. They put him on a cross, eyewitnessed by thousands, brutally beaten, spat upon, murdered, put on a cross. He died. But three days later, when they went to go and find him in the tomb to care for his dead, rotting corpse, he was gone. One of my favorite uh, questions in Scripture comes from an angel in Luke chapter 24, verse 5 through 7. The angel says this, In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? You would never look for someone who is alive in a graveyard. This is their question. Why? He's alive, so why are you at a tomb? Why are you at a, a gravesite? It's ridiculous. Why? Because he is alive. 2 Timothy says this, chapter 2, verse 8 through 10. Remember, again, Paul uses this language again and again throughout the New Testament in his letters. Remember, Jesus Christ raised from the dead descended from David, this is my gospel. What's your gospel? Paul was utterly convinced of his gospel. He knew what the good news was. Not about him, but about God. His gospel was Jesus, who was dead, is alive. This is my gospel. And he goes on in verse 9. For which I'm suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal, but God's word is not chained. Regardless of the suffering that I'm in right now, this is my gospel, that Jesus is alive. I've given myself over not to a dead man, but to a man who raised from the dead. I can suffer anything. Why? Because he's alive. I would never do this if he was still dead. If Jesus was still dead, I would not be up here preaching. I would be the most selfish, self-centered person in the world trying to make other people worship me. But my gospel, Paul says, this is my gospel. He's alive. So whether suffering comes, I, it doesn't matter, because he's alive. That is such a phenomenal reality of the gospel of God, that Jesus is alive. 
And because he's alive, we can be alive. Number seven, this is the promise of salvation to those who would believe. This is real simple. If you would just believe in Jesus, that he is God's son, sent into the world to be savior, forgiveness of sins and salvation in heaven, not paying the penalty for sin in hell, but living in, in, in heaven with God. Salvation. I love 1 John 5, chapter 11 through verse 13. Simply says this. This is the testimony. God's given us eternal life. This life is in his son. Verse 12. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. Do you have eternal life? If you have Jesus, you have eternal life. If you don't have Jesus, you don't. Separated from God forever in eternity in hell. It's pretty simple. You have the Son. You have life. You have salvation. You have forgiveness. Peace with God. If you don't, eternally separated, cut off from God. I love the simplicity of John. Do you have Jesus? Do you not have Jesus? Do you have the Son, God's Son, who came into the world to save sinners. Number eight, the promise of heaven. I believe personally for me, and I don't know if this would resonate with you, I don't think about heaven enough. But according to John chapter 14, verse one through three, that's what Jesus is doing right now. He's preparing a place for you. His disciples are getting very worried. Jesus, you keep talking about you're leaving we don't like this kind of talk. You stay right here. You stay put. We like you. You do good things. You give us good meals. People get healed. We've seen some pretty cool stuff. Stay here. We got it under control. We got your back. And Jesus says in chapter 14, verse 1, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Verse 2, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And verse 3, if I go and I prepare a place for you, the good news, I'm coming back to take you to be with me that you also would be where I am. This is not it. This is not it. Jesus is preparing a place in heaven for you to be with him forever. That is the gospel. Number nine, two more. The promise of the Holy Spirit. I'll stick in John chapter 14, verse 16 through 17. Jesus is going, but Jesus says something amazing. I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him he lives with you and will be in you. Meaning the gospel says you're not alone. You have the spirit of God that resides in you. He goes on in 26 and 27 to say this. <clears throat> but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, God residing in you, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything. I don't need to live life confused. Why? Because the spirit of God has taken up residence in me to guide me, to lead me, to protect me, to provide for me. God, what do I do here? The Spirit of God in me. What about this? He leads. I'm confused here. I give you understanding. 
I feel restless. I give you peace. Number 10. The gospel declares that you can have a new life. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 just says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. That resonated with me when I met Jesus because I knew what my life was like before I met God and it was a mess. Filled with so much fear and insecurity, filled with so much hatred and anger and bitterness, filled with so much lust. Why little Joey up here had those four? That was me. But the gospel declares that I'm a new man. I'm a new creation. The old has gone, and a new way of living has come. The gospel declares that God is alive. He reigns. There is no God like our God. Gospel declares that Jesus is the Savior. He died for our sins, that our sins would be forgiven. The gospel declares that Jesus is alive. The promise that you would be saved, have salvation if you would believe. The promise of heaven, the promise that we have the Spirit of God who lives, resides within us, and the promise of a new life. How do you live with the gospel at the center of your life? How do you keep the gospel as the core of who you are? So that what you do or don't do, what you say or don't say, how you act or react or respond, your behaviors, your attitudes, is so driven by the gospel at work in your life. This coming trimester That is the place where we're going. That is the journey we take. Is to say, I don't want fear to be my core. I don't want lust to be my core. I don't want anger and bitterness to be my core and emptiness to be my core. I don't want to be confused at my core because of my past, my present, or my future. I want the gospel to be the core, the good news of everything that I just said, starting with God is alive and he loves you. And he came for you. One of the things, if you do a life group and you go through the content of what we will be doing, I'm going to give you very quickly the gospel road. Okay? We'll bring Joey back to life. Okay, there's Joey. He's just kind of hanging out, right? This is Joey just walking on, doing his thing. But Joey comes to a place right here where he stopped in his tracks by the gospel, symbolized by the cross. There will come a point in every man or woman's life where you will have to decide, what do I do with Jesus? What do I do with the gospel? I can choose to ignore and walk the other way, which would mean to turn around and go back that way. But there comes a point where you have to decide, and I will press this decision today, what will you do with Jesus? There's two choices. I receive or I reject. And something amazing happens 
when I receive. The gospel comes to life in my life. Okay? As I have made now a decision to walk with Jesus, to have the gospel at the center of my life, something amazing begins to happen. There is a growing awareness of God, who He is, how good He is, how holy He is, how sovereign He is, how merciful and compassionate. I continue to grow in my understanding, my knowledge, my experience of God. God is increasing in my life, but something amazing happens as I begin to understand how good, gracious, kind, merciful, holy God is, I start realizing I am so not that. I am nothing like God. And I start realizing, just summarize it there, just how sinful I am. If God is like that, oh my goodness, how sinful I am. And you start asking the question, how can a sinful person like me connect with a God who is holy, perfect, just, righteous, faithful, compassionate, generous? How can me, I'm growing in my understanding of how sinful I am, how can I connect with him? And there's only one answer. It's the cross. And as more of the cross takes residence in my life, more of the gospel is the core of who I am, and I begin to grow and understand more and more of God and more and more of myself, the only thing that keeps me connected and growing in my relationship with God is the gospel. And I keep growing, I keep growing, and I keep understanding, my goodness, I thought he was really holy, but now a year into this thing, I didn't actually understand how holy he is. And my knowledge, awareness, experience of God just continues to increase. But then I continue to understand I am so not God. One of the things that I love about Apostle Paul is he just says again and again, I am the worst of sinners. This is Paul. And Paul says, I am such a sinful person in view of who God is. I am wrecked. I am just such a sinner. But what keeps you growing and connected with God is the cross. If you do this life group this trimester, one of the things you will be forced to wrestle with is there is a way that you can nullify the cross, the gospel at work in your life. I'll just give you two words. Perform and pretend. If you become a performer, meaning you're growing in how good God is, man, I've got to perform. I've got to be really good. I've got to work really hard. I've got to do all these things, and hopefully God will love me, embrace me. I become a Pharisee because I'm just trying to live that good life. I don't do this, but I do this. I don't say that, but I say this. And I become a performer. What happens is I begin to minimize the cross in my life. And if you don't perform for God, trying to earn him, thinking you can get him to love you more, then you will be a person who will begin to pretend. Like, yeah, I get it. I'm a sinner, but my sin's not that big deal. I'm not like the guy next to me. He's really jacked up. 
or I'm not like this person over here. They're really messed up. My stuff is not that bad. And I start pretending. Yeah, I get it. I'm not that good, but God's actually somewhat kind of impressed. I'm not that bad. And if you begin to pretend, you've got performance up here. You've got pretending down here. And in the middle here, you've got a very small cross that goes nowhere in your life because you've exchanged the gospel for performance or pretending. My prayer would be that in this church, in this community, uh, we would neither perform for God and we would neither pretend, try to fake ourselves out or fake those around us out. My heart for you, for me, is that the cross, the gospel, would just increase exponentially. So that six weeks from now, 12 weeks from now, 12 months from now, the cross may have been this big in your life, but a year from now, it's this big. Because you're starting to get God, and you're starting to get yourself, and you start to understand, I need more gospel in my life. Five years from now, the cross is now this big in your life. Ten years, it's just growing and growing and growing. Some of us met Jesus ten years ago, but spiritually, we're still one years old. Why? Because the cross is about yay big. My prayer is that we would neither perform nor pretend. We would just let the cross, the gospel, transform the core of who we are into who God's called us to be. I'm going to pray, and one of my prayers is going to be, there might be someone sitting right there. And I'm just going to simply pray a prayer that would declare, I want to receive Jesus. I don't want to think about him anymore. I don't want to be cynical about him anymore. I want to receive the gospel, what Jesus has done in my life. And when we're done with that, we're going to celebrate communion. I know it's already after 12 o'clock, but we're still going to worship. We still respond to the gospel at work in this place in our lives. We will respond to the truth that you are loved, that you are forgiven, and that Jesus is alive. So if that's you, you're this guy right here, then pray with me and make a decision and a declaration that you will not settle for false gods anymore, that Jesus will be your God. You will receive him and accept him as your savior, the one who brings you to a place of peace with God. Father God, I pray. And Jesus, today in this place, I declare you to be Savior, my Savior. And Jesus, I invite you to come into my life. I receive you as God's Son. Jesus, I confess that I've sinned. I've rebelled against you. But Jesus, I believe in faith that because of your perfect life, because of your death, and because of your resurrection, my sins are forgiven both now and forever, and I can have peace with God. Jesus Christ, I receive you into my life today. Begin the gospel work in me.
Jesus, thank you for loving me. Help me to grow in loving you. As you guys are ready to come and receive uh, communion, come with a sense of gratitude and thankfulness that you are greatly loved by God. He's demonstrated that in his son, Jesus. Take a piece of the bread, remembering that he went to a cross to pay the penalty for sin. And take it and dip it in the wine or the juice, remembering that his blood was shed, that our sins would be forgiven both now and forever. And just say thank you. Say thank you for the gospel. Say thank you that God has received you and you have peace with him because of Jesus. Thank you.